Build your cultural competence. Listen to interesting stories. Learn about the cultural pitfalls and how to avoid them. Get the global perspective here at Culture Matters Podcast on international business. We help you understand cultural diversity better by interviewing real people with real experiences, helping you develop your cultural competence. Welcome, Culture Matters, and we're doing a podcast and we're doing a video cast as well. On episode number 73, and our guest today is Joe or Joseph Lurie. And Joe Lurie is the author of the award-winning Perception and Deception, a mind-opening journey across cultures. He is executive director at Emeritus of USA Berkeley's International House, where he served for two decades. Currently a cross-cultural communication speaker and in university lecturer. He served as a Peace Corps volunteer in Kenya and directed academic programs abroad in Ghana, France, and Kenya for the School of International Training. There's more to come even. Formerly Vice President and Chief Operating Officer for AFS Exchange Programs in the United States and National Chair for Academic Studies Abroad for the Association of International Educators. Joe has lectured for Berkeley's Cal Discoveries in Thailand, in Bali, Indonesia, South Africa, and France. And has work. his work has been featured on NPR and PBS. That was a mouthful. <clears throat> That's the introduction of Joe Lurie or Joseph Lurie. And um, we're starting off this interview with a very interesting explanation on how Joe sees culture. And he explains culture um, or he compares culture to a frog and the sea. You want to find out more? Keep listening. Uh, you, by the way, you can also watch um, culturematters.com slash YouTube and you end up on the YouTube channel, um, my YouTube channel, and you can actually see what lo- what um, uh, Joe looks like and uh, in a tiny thumbnail shot what I look like, if that is of any interest to you, of course. All right, let's get right to the interview. It's time for this week's guest at the Culture Matters podcast. Here's your host, Chris Smith. Good morning, Joseph. Because that's your real and good name, right? And good evening, Chris. All right. Hi. How are you? I'm very well. And you? Excellent. I'm doing really well as well. Uh, we just established before actually hitting record, uh, and we are recording right now, that it is your morning and it is starting to be my evening. So it's um, it's 5.41 here, recording time, p.m. that is, and it's uh, 8.41 where you are a.m. in the morning. That means that you are on the other side of the world somewhere. So... First question, as always, is um, tell us a little bit about yourself, please, uh, where you are, where do you come from, and what would you consider being your cultural frame of reference? Well, I was originally born in New York City, uh-huh. um, and I'm speaking to you now from Berkeley, California, where I have been living with my wife uh, since 1988, uh-huh. and where I a good part of an important part of my career uh, um, basically leading an institution that is called International House mm-hmm. at the University of California, Berkeley, which has an extraordinary uh, range of people from many, from uh, close to 80 countries, mm-hmm. um, six, close to 600 people from 80 countries in which every day everything is a close encounter of a cross-cultural kind, <laughs> from lunch to laundry, 
uh, to love affairs. Yes, I can fully imagine. Um, actually, all of them, lunch, laundry, and love affairs. As well, I can relate to all of them. Okay, excellent. You are in the, um, and that's something we um, heard in the uh, in the introduction as well. An emeritus, emer- how do you pronounce that word? Sorry, my English is decent, but I don't know how to pronounce that word. Emeritus. Which word? An- Which was the word? Emeritus. Oh, emeritus means... Emeritus, that's uh, where yeah. you do it. The emphasis is yes. there. Emeritus is a term that is uh, often used when one retires yeah. uh, and it's awarded a an honor of distinction. You have right. served with distinction. Okay. And so since leaving International House, I've been spending much of my um, quote-unquote retirement years writing a book, yeah. uh, doing intercultural training, teaching intercultural communication. Yeah. And that's where we will talk about all these things as well, and typically about your book as well, because that is, um, let me mention the uh, the title, Perception and Deception, A Mind-Opening Journey Across Cultures. And it's we'll put a link in the show notes where you can get this book, and, and I'm going to ask you about this book, of course. What really triggered me was the cover, because what you see in the cover, um, which I can't show even though we're recording this on video as well, you see the image of a cow, a beautiful cow, and there the it question, is. Oh, there you go. Great, you got it there. You and did? it says, "What am I?" The cow asks, "Am I divine?" You could be in India. Am I a dowry? As could be in what other country would it be a dowry, Joe? Well, it could be many parts of Africa. It could be some parts of the Middle East, even some parts of Asia, where the cow is is seen as. Um, a source of wealth and yep. is presented as a dowry. And of course, for meat eaters, uh, perhaps dinner. Yeah, wonderful. Divine dowry or dinner. Excellent title and um, a real inspiration, actually, to um, to read further, to, to open this book as well. Where, um, I can call you Joe, right? Just to make that sure. Yes, absolutely. Okay. And may I call you Chris? Uh, absolutely, you may. From where does your interest come in different cultures? Where does it come you from? You know, I think it would- I think it was born when I was a, um, a Peace Corps volunteer, uh-huh. United States Peace Corps, uh, serving in Kenya back in the late 60s. Yeah. And um, I knew virtually nothing about uh, Kenya, very little about Africa, which is sadly true today for most people who are not uh, true. from Africa or have been to Africa. Yeah. And I remember just uh, this was kind of the trigger of my awareness about misconceptions across cultures. And how our assumptions, often uh, limited, drive perceptions that are totally inaccurate. So, for example, mm-hmm. when I was flying to Nairobi, mm-hmm. the capital. we stopped it in Uganda, Uganda uh-huh. in the middle of the night for a, a few refueling. And I remember getting out of the plane, mm-hmm. and uh, the air was heavy, humid, and I remember saying to a fellow volunteer, don't you smell the lions? Do you smell the lions? Uh-huh. Now... There are no lions, and there were no lions within no. 20 to 30 miles of Entebbe Airport in Uganda. Uh-huh. Why did I? Why? What was my sense of? Why did I thought think I was smelling lions? Because even today, mm-hmm. the predominant images of the United States, and I suspect still in many parts of Europe, are about animals, not right. about people. Right. And so my senses totally um, deceived me. Uh-huh. And so this was my awareness of where did this come from? It came from an assumption that was built into me and perhaps millions of other people about us. And then just to follow this up, because it was made much more dramatic, (laughs) we were taking Swahili courses for it, right? Because Swahili is a principal language in much of East Africa. 
And I remember a Swahili uh, professor coming up to me after class and holding my hand. Now, if you are from a heterosexual background, this is something you are not used to, holding a man's hand. Typically and I'm not American talking as well. About, yeah. Exactly. I'm not talking about holding a man's hand, Chris, for a minute or two. Uh -huh. I'm talking about holding a man's hand for 15 minutes of conversation. <laughs> so I was, of course, very uncomfortable, but I tried to keep my discomfort shielded because I didn't want to offend him. Mm -hmm. What did I learn? To make yeah. the long story short, yeah. men hold hands in most parts of Africa, yeah. in many parts of the Middle East, yes. in parts of Asia, without any suggestion of homosexuality at all. Absolutely. So you see how the perception was totally shaped yeah. by a limited experience. Yes. In my book, and here I'll, I'll just kind of frame it this way, I cite a Chinese poem, which basically refers to a frog. How shall I explain the sea to a frog who has never left its pond? I realized that my pond, your pond, all of our ponds are very limited. Frog and sea. You just gave me another story. This is an, ex an excellent example. Um, the frog and the sea. How do you explain that? It's so. How did you did you um, leave the hand? Leave your hand in the hands of that other that Kenyan, or that guy from? I from, did. You did. Yes, I did, and but I was very uh, uncomfortable. Uh -huh. But it took about two or three months. You know, observing uh, African men holding hands all the time, walking down the street with each other. Yeah. And after three months, I started, Chris, to feel comfortable with this. Okay. So comfortable that after three years, Chris, when I came back to the United States, I did not know what to do with my hand. <laughs> But you, you, were, you did not start holding hands with other, with other uh, male men? In the United States? Yes. No, 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 no I didn't. No. no, but it was kind of compounded by a story uh, told to me by a Nigerian friend when I told him this story. Yeah. Uh, and in Nigeria, like most other parts of Africa, men hold hands all the time. Uh -huh. And he said, you know, uh, he lives in San Francisco. He said, uh -huh. you know, when he first came to San Francisco, he was holding hands with a Nigerian friend of his, and they were walking through the Castro. For your audience, the Castro is the gay section of San Francisco. <laughs> okay. And people thought that they were gay, and this was, of course, another misperception. Yes. Yeah, from, from all sides, really, in this case. Yeah, it creates yes, tremendous exactly. confusion like that. Was that your first trip outside the U.S.? No, I had I had traveled in Europe. Okay. Uh, I had been, you know, one of my rites of passage was hitchhiking in Europe, actually, with some Belgians. Okay. Uh, and being introduced to some of the European uh, ways and customs that I was not uh, not at all accustomed to. Okay. So there was a little bit of a, a, a an awareness raising at that time. Okay. And and just on this this the first notion you mentioned, like, uh, do you smell the lions? Would you agree with me that um, this is on the notion of smell only? That Africa has a specific smell. No. <laughs> okay. I, well, other than maybe South Africa. So, well, I mean, for example, have have you spent a lot of time in Africa yourself, Chris? I've been to Kenya. I've been to uh, Lagos. I've been to Nigeria and South Africa many times. So I've seen a bit. I mean, of Sub-Saharan Africa, that is. No, I mean, you know, Africa has a tremendous range of geographical, geographical characteristics, mm -hmm. from mountains to yes. deserts to savanna. And so I never noticed any consistency with regard to smell. I lived, when I was in Kenya, in the highlands in the tea area. Mm -hmm. uh, I was about 7,000 feet up. 
Yeah. And so if I'd go to Nairobi or back to Ni- back to Mombasa on the coast, the odors were different. Yeah. It was also different depending on who was cooking what type of food. Okay. So and I've been to South Africa, to Tanzania, to Nigeria, to Ghana. I I wouldn't say that the uh, the odors that are at all uh, consistent. Okay. All right. Well, miss um, uh, disagreement then, at least, or okay. a mild different experience, maybe. Well, what? But out of curiosity, what was what was the smell that you found was consistent? It's. I've been to except Australia, every continent, and um, every time coming back to Africa, you step outside of the the plane is a big word. You have to step outside the airport. You know, if it's typically if it's a smaller airport, and it's it's this smell. It's this, I think it's a combination of burning wood. And the the soil, the the dark red um, African soil. So it's for me. I I think I could I could pass the test if you would put me in in Africa. I would be able to tell whether I would be in South America or in Africa just by the smell, blindfolded. Oh, yes. oh interesting. Yeah. I think I, I think. I mean, I haven't done the tests, but that's I, this. I've got this strong um, smell memory, if if that makes any sense, of Africa. Yeah, and okay. it's a pleasant smell. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's something like you close your eyes and it's like, yes, you're in Africa. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Anyways, that's my experience. Um, you, right. you mentioned you said you went to the um, uh, to Kenya for the Peace Corps. Yes. What what is it you do there, and how did that work? Because a Western in a Kenyan environment is not like a not a per se a natural fit. If that makes any sense. Well, the Peace Corps was initiated during the Kennedy years, Mm -hmm. and the whole idea was that young Americans would have an opportunity to serve and to do something of value and perhaps learn something about parts of the world that they were unaware of. And and underneath was, of course, a political motive to make friends for the United States. Um, And so the the U.S. Peace Corps continues to exist. It it, uh, volunteers go out and teach or do community development projects. Uh, agriculture project projects, all kinds of projects in many developing countries around the world. And the Dutch is at least my memory of this also had a similar organization by a different name. Mm-hmm. And that's where I met Dutch volunteers who were working on coffee plantations. Okay. In Kenya. Yes. Yeah. How did that, how did that work all together? These Ken- the local Kenyans, uh, the, the Dutchies, my country, and then you as a, as a, I guess a group or a couple of Americans there. How, how did that, well, how did that all mix and merge? Uh, well, at that time, there were probably 75 U.S. Peace Corps volunteers throughout Kenya in various kinds of projects. Mm-hmm. And it just so happened that I lived in a rural, relatively remote area at the time mm-hmm. that was that where there were two Dutch volunteers. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were other Dutch volunteers in, in Kenya that I happened to meet. And they were working with coffee plantations and coffee factories. Mm-hmm. And their Swahili was basic and I just happened to have some much more intense training. Mm -hmm. And so they asked me if I could assist them with translations when they were working with um, factory uh, employees Mm -hmm. with regard to uh, increasing production, improving facilitation of the coffee process. Mm -hmm. So that's how I met the Dutch volunteers. And then we, of course, became friends and, and, um, and one of them I continue to be in contact with. He married an American and lives in Alaska now. Okay. Yeah. Nice. Nice, nice, nice. So that, that, that basically went pretty much okay, I guess. 
Yes. Yeah. I mean, certainly everybody's experience with these things depends on the chemistry between them and another individual, irrespective of what culture they come from. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, you mentioned in the beginning, I mean, you told this story about the frog in the sea. And so how do you explain uh, to a frog that has never left this pond what a sea actually is? If I translate that to business, uh, my experience is, is that many organizations, many businesses, they brush over culture way too fast. They, they look at, um, I mean, I, I always use the example of a bank. A bank outsources all this IT stuff or most of its IT stuff to India. Why? Because, you know, it makes good sense. If I add up the numbers, Indians work relatively cheap. They're well educated. Their English is good, etc. So, you know what? Let's do this. And in the end, it's like, uh, that didn't really go that well. What is your experience? I mean, you have so much experience business-wise as well. Why do companies do this? Uh, uh, let me be cl clear, uh, Chris. Why do companies do what exactly? Brush what over culture. Why do they oh. – uh, most of my clients actually come to me when they've they've hurt themselves. It's like, what is this thing called culture? You know, can you say something? Because I'm, I don't get it. Because yeah, I see the point. Well, I mean, I think ultimately – uh -huh. All of us, no matter how well we're traveled, how conscious we are, mm -hmm. but on some level, all of us remain prisoners of our ponds, yeah. right? I agree. And we are ethnocentric, right? Yes. Oh, we cannot know everything no. throughout the world. Yeah. So, for example, um, many uh, people from Europe, the United States, Latin America are going and doing business in China now, right? Yeah. And so – a very large number of them are kind of shocked when they first get there because their assumption based on what they're used to mm -hmm. is I'm arriving. When are we going to have our first meeting? Mm -hmm. When are we going to start discuss the agenda? Yeah. And so it's very alienating to uh, many business people who go to China from with that perspective yeah. when they find that they don't even begin to discuss business for the first three or four days. Yes. And they are take their, the, all these banquets. What are all these banquets? I want to talk about business. Yeah, it's a waste well, of time. <laughs> you know, this is all a waste of time. Yeah. So this is a different concept of how you get things done. They don't realize that from the Chinese perspective, mm -hmm. and I'm speaking generally speaking, of yes, course. Yes, of course. This is a way. This is a way of forming a relationship of my getting to know you, mm -hmm. and this is one of the reasons, actually, that traditionally, even to a large extent today, that in many parts in China and many parts of Asia, contracts are a source of distrust. Yeah. Why would I want to write this down? Exactly. Uh, you know, this is uh, you're not trusting me. I mean, I had an example recently uh, doing some work with a company here in Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm who had a contract with Brazilians, mm -hmm. right? And it was a 500-page contract. And they, the Americans realized, oh, my goodness, they're not respecting at least eight or nine of the points in the contract, mm -hmm. some of which had to do with deadlines. Yeah. Now, your concept of a deadline, my concept of a deadline, and the concept of many other people is totally different. Yeah. So different that in many languages, the word deadline doesn't even exist. No. Yeah. So the American company did, wasn't sensitive to these issues of different concepts of time. What does late mean? What does soon mean? Mm -hmm. What does a deadline mean? Mm -hmm. So the American company was in crisis because the Brazilians were missing all these deadlines and they didn't have a conversation to begin with mm -hmm. to assess what is your concept of these things right. so that they, they were beginning in the same uh, sharing their assumptions, which if they knew in the beginning would have facilitated a much better communication. Yeah. 
So it, it's, you know, when we get into a car and we start driving, the first thing that the majority, fast majority of a, a, a country does, at least in, in our parts of the world, we put on our safety belts. So in other words, we guard ourselves uh, against something that might happen, but usually doesn't happen. So why don't we have this attitude of, okay, we're going to do business in, in Japan, in India, in China, Brazil, Russia, whatever, um, and I need to figure out how this culture works. We have an understanding that language might be different, but somehow we, it's, it's not in our veins or genes that we, we realize that. Yeah. Could, could you pinpoint a reason for that? Well, I think it goes back to ethnocentrism. Yeah. My reality is my reality. And the, the, and that's the truth. And that's, of, and that's the, the, the that's absolute your truth. truth. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And the nature of my experience is what drive, gives me a sense of centeredness. Uh-huh. So if, if if it's very disorienting to go beyond your pond if you haven't experienced yes. that outer rim, yeah. right? And so, you know, the first time any of us enters another country, irrespective of whether it's in business, travel, tourism, education, we encounter things that are disruptive. Mm-hmm. Who likes, you know, unless you really kind of crave chaos, yeah. people don't like this. It's true. It's comfort zone, right? We don't like to get out of our comfort zone. Exactly. I like this great exactly. saying, which says, you know, life begins outside of your comfort zone. That's a, oh, I could, oh, that's beautiful. Let me, I'll write that down. Okay, that's a, that's a that's a free one. That's mine from from me to you. <laughs> Is it, you you also said you know it's a, um, before we hit record. You also uh, told this well thing that happened to you in Kenya as well. You realized what that you read that you did not know so many things, like your blind spots all of a sudden became visible. And that yes. developed and that sort of triggered your career further in culture. Is being an American now, being in, in California, do, is there, do you look at American society or Americans with different eyes? Do you feel, I mean, I was going to say, do you feel like an enlightened American? But do you sometimes wonder, like, what is my people doing? Well, again, you know, what's the concept of people, right? It, it, you know, there are all kinds of people in the uh-huh. United States, there are kinds of people in the Netherlands. I remember a, a, um, a statement by Solzhenitsyn, for example, and I, I suspect that what's driving your question is the era of Trump, right? Possibly. Um, perhaps I'm wrong. Possibly. Perhaps. Okay. Uh, not necessarily. Anyway, this is how I look at this. Mm-hmm. Uh, we all look at different cultures through our own prism. Yeah. But the notion of good and evil, I thought, was summed up, and we tend to generalize, many of us, because it's convenient to do. Yeah. Well, I go back to Solzhenitsyn's comment the line between good and evil does not pass between nations, cultures, or religions. It, it passes right through the human heart. Right. So, yes, when I lived in France, for example, I was disturbed by many, not all, but many French people saying how ignorant Americans are. Yeah. Of course there are ignorant yeah. Americans. We have artists. We have great writers. We have culture in this country, perhaps not honored to the same extent as in Europe, exactly. where you have streets named after uh, composers, writers, etc. But to assume that because you have a longer history, there is no art, no culture, no intellectuals in the United States, as is the case among some very narrow-minded Europeans, yeah. you know, it's a mistake. Yeah. It's a mistake. Oh, it's true. It's just, I, I, occasionally, I live in Belgium. Um, I've mentioned that very often on the podcast. And, um, being a Dutchman living in Belgium, I get these arguments as well about Americans that you guys are so superficial. You have no culture. There's no history, etc. And then I say, how old is your country? How old is Belgium? 
Exactly. Well, Belgium as a country was uh, um, was founded in 1830, if I am correct. So, and then they they're usually quiet because then it's you know you, the fact that you're not a country yet doesn't doesn't give you the, doesn't mean that you don't have a history exactly like you said yourself. <laughs> yeah. And depending on what one's political perspective is in Europe, as you well know, mm-hmm. you know there are some people who are big fans of Trump in Europe. Yeah. And there are others. Wow, there are others who are horrified. Yeah. I can assure you. The same dichotomy exists in the United States. Very much. Yeah. Remember, Hillary Clinton won the popular vote by three million votes. Yeah, yeah, true. Yeah, it's very. It's a. So yeah, that's what I mean. Being a Dutchman living in Belgium, when I go back to the Netherlands, it feels like um, it feels like I'm wearing comfortable jeans. If that makes any sense, you know, because yeah. I I get it. I and I also see. The, uh, for instance, stereotypical, typical Dutch bluntness, the directness. And, and then I, I look at that and I, I, I think, um, it's not that I, I was going to say it's not that I dislike it. Sometimes I do dislike it. So, and, but sometimes I wonder, can't you be a little bit softer, just sugarcoat it? You know, it's, the Dutch can be so direct. And I see that now only since I've been out of, out of my country for the last 10 years. Yeah, you know, this is a very good point uh, because as 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 interculturalists know, many of us who have been exposed to this, to be direct, whether you are Dutch or generally speaking from the United States or some other countries, Israel, for example, is considered from an indirect uh, style of communication, yes. which is probably far more common in the world. Oh, yeah. As very, but from our perspective, this is polite. I'm putting my cards on the table. I'm being straight with you. Yeah. Whereas indirect cultures... You are so brutish. Oh, yeah. Why are you doing this? And that's why we don't understand um, the different ways of expressing no without saying no in many parts of exactly. Asia. Yes. I, I mean, I was flabbergasted the first time that I was in Japan uh, and I was talking with a, a, a Japanese business person and I was trying to get an answer out of him again in, in my l- limited pond. Yeah. And, it, you know, I tried to get an answer out of him and his response was this. <laughs> Deep breath in. Now, that is a very common way of saying, no, I don't want to discuss right. this anymore. Right. No words. Yeah. Deep breath in. Not a slurp, but a deep breath in. Yeah. Uh, the same thing with uh, deep breaths in uh, Ethiopia. The first time I heard many Ethiopians w- with a deep breath, mm-hmm. I thought they had asthma. Okay. This means yes in many parts of Ethiopia. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. So, yeah, if I, it's, I mean, I, um, I have a, a, um, a history. I've been married to an Indian for for ten years, and uh, it's something that my, if if I would ask my mother-in-law, you know, would you like this or that, she would do the, and I can do this on video. She would, she would, I would ask Mita, would you like this or that, and she would go like. That, and, and what I'm doing is a bit of the wobbly head or just a shake to the tilting my head to the left and that's it. And then I said, would you like, well, would you like some, some tea? And she would do the wobbly head and then, uh, would you like some coffee? Same motion. And I, I said, Mita, we need to sit down. We need to talk about this because I, I can't read your code. It's, I need a yes or a no and I can't read the code and you would help me. If you would actually, you know, explain the language, the coded language, the nonverbal language to me, so yeah. yes, and and um, always scares me. I, I must have made thousands of these mistakes, these directness. All of, all of us, yeah. And if it wasn't for the fact that I had spent so many years living in other countries, when I came back to the United States mm-hmm. and invited people from other countries to our home, mm-hmm. uh, particularly <laughs> from non-Western countries, and I would say exactly the same question you asked: uh-huh. Would you like? 
frequently people, particularly from non-Western countries, wouldn't answer the question. Or are you hungry? Yeah. And they wouldn't answer the question. And that is because in so many of these cultures I came to understand, yeah. you don't want to say I'm hungry or yes, I'd like this so-and-so because it appears that you are feeling greedy. Yeah. So, you know, one of the tips is ask three times. Okay, ask three good. times and you're more likely to get an answer, an accurate answer. I'm writing already because you're actually, you're alluding to the last question. Um, <laughs> excellent. Um, I'd like to, um, I'm looking at my screen here and uh, the, actually I'd like to move to your book, The Perception and Deception. So um, tell us something about that book. What's it about? What inspired you? Uh, and possibly maybe share some, well, examples or stories, what's content-wise. Well, I guess ultimately what inspired me was my experiences in Kenya, where mm -hmm. um, so many of my experiences led to an insight that I'd never even dreamed of. I'll give you one example, uh -huh. because it kind of drives, drives the rest of the book. I remember taking my students to the University of Nairobi. Most of them had never been in Nairobi, mm -hmm. major city, major metropolis. Yeah. And I remember one of my students was being introduced to a professor from the United Kingdom. Mm -hmm. And he said, nice to meet you, grandma. Well, she recoiled. First of all, I don't know him. Yeah. This student, this young student, and he's calling me grandma, different concept of what age means. Yes. Right? I don't know if anybody ever said this to somebody in your family that they didn't know. Nice to meet you, grandma. No, not really. So, no. you know, so it, it alerted me to the, our notions about age and youth in this country, whereas the word grandma in most parts of Africa is a term of the greatest respect. The greatest respect. So that's why the, the, the book is, is shaped by this notion of perception and deception, what I think I'm seeing. So the second chapter, the one after the, uh, the raising of um, consciousness in Africa, is about my experiences at the International House for three years where people from 80 countries intermingle and everything is a close encounter of a cross-cultural kind. Mm -hmm. And then I go to immigrants um, who come to this country and have told me things about how they look at behaviors in the United States that they find striking. I'll give you one example. Oh, yeah. I asked a group of Korean journalists uh, to go out into San Francisco, spend the day just watching behaviors of U.S. Americans, if they could identify them, more or less, yeah. and to come back and tell me everything they had never seen before was confusing, even bizarre, maybe even upsetting. Uh -huh. And they came back and they all said the following. So many Americans sit alone, walk alone, eat alone, go to the movies alone. Are they mentally disturbed? <laughs> What a judgment. So this goes to this whole issue of individualism, collectivism, how we define yeah. ourselves. But their perception kind of drove the rest of the book, much of which has to do with issues in the news today. I don't know uh, to to what extent exa extent you've seen the been following the diplomatic conflicts about uh, Norwegian ch uh, Indian children in Norway. No. So, for example, no. Several years ago, it's ongoing with other children. Several years ago, and I'll end with this because uh, uh, the chapter is about the the chapter is about all of these news items uh -huh. uh, and how do we untangle these clashes? And so, uh, the Norwegian social services took a child away from its Indian parents because they thought the parents were abusing the kid. Okay. Why? A, the parents were feeding the child with their hand, with okay. the right hand. Yes. Okay, and we all know in India, people, eat, as in many countries, eat with their hand, as not you normally do, yes. Okay. 
And an Indian will tell you, well, you know, my, I know I washed my hand. I, I don't know if they washed the fork or the knife in the restaurant. So let's be careful here. And secondly, as in many parts of the world, children sleep with their parents up until two, three, four in Japan, up until the age of 12 or 13. Oh, often. yeah, very much. They thought that sexual abuse was going on because the child was sleeping in the bed with the parents. So this created ongoing for months, even years. Uh, they took the ch child away from the parents. Wow. Even today, there are debates in Norway about, you know, in some cultures, it's considered okay to spank a child. In many cultures, probably most in Europe and the United States, no. we've come to the point, no, you don't no. do that. Yes. So we need to understand these things. Uh, and so that's why I kind of end the book with discussions about what's going on in the news today and to try to untangle some of these cultural disconnects in, in the news that we're right in front of our eyes. So, and this is an, an actual uh, thing going on right now. Well, there are other examples. The, okay. the example I cite about the child in uh, the, the Indian child in Norway uh, happened a couple of years ago, uh -huh. but there's an ongoing issue right now with other children that were taken away from Indian immigrants in Norway. Um, and again, this has nothing to do with Norwegians in general. No, and it not with Indians either. Exactly. Yeah. Thank you. Yes, yes. And th for those of you who are listening and watching the um, the podcast, uh, the date that we're recording this is January 11, uh, 2017. It is just coming because you are referring to actual um, uh, happenings in the world. So people might want to know at what timeline are we uh, are we recording this and at what time are, are people listening to this potentially in the future. What's the, uh, what's the most striking story that is in your book f as far as you're concerned? Oh, my goodness. Um, that's a tough one, Chris, because, uh, you know, I, I try to make the book as readable as possible. You know, many of the intercultural books that are out there, as valuable as they are, yeah. are sometimes so um, dense with theory. Yes. But as you said early on, sometimes you, the best way to communicate is through a story. Huh. So here's a story. Here's one. That, okay, this good. is mind-blowing. Okay. <laughs> okay, I'm ready. Be, be I'm ready. You might you might have to censor this, Chris. No, we're um, okay. All right. So why, if I were to say to you, yeah. why are there footprints on the toilet seat? Would you have a reaction? Because my uh, my daughter would have done this or something. I I don't know. Okay. So Chris, the vast majority. This is what I discovered. Uh huh. The vast majority of people in the world do not sit on toilet seats. Yes. They crouch. They call it crouching. You okay, are, squatting. Crouching. Yeah. yeah. Yes which happens even to Western doctors will tell you it's healthier to have a bowel movement by crouching rather than sitting. Okay. So if you are used to crouching, yeah. when you encounter a sitting toilet for the first time, you don't want to sit on that toilet. No. You are in the crouch position. So you stand or crouch on the toilet. That is why at many airports around the world, Western airports, yeah. I know this in San Francisco. Yeah. I know it from my experiences at the National House. Toilet seats have been broken. Footprints have been found on the toilet, on the toilet seat. And recently in the news, yeah. just to wrap it up, yeah. in, in uh, Jackson Hole, Wyoming, a big tourist center in the United States, they noticed a flurry of toilet seats being broken. Why? Yeah. Because there's an influx of Chinese tourists who have traveled for the first time and they are so used to the narrow uh, uh, crouching that when yeah. they get they see sit down, that's the reason. 
That's one of my most stunning examples. Very good story. And I don't have to censor this at all because everybody go, <laughs> everybody has to go to the bathroom. So <laughs> excellent story. Excellent uh, uh, addition, contribution, insights as well. Um, this book, the, um, the again, Perception and Deception, A Mind-Opening Journey Across Cultures. It, this podcast is not about promoting this book, but if people want to get this book, where can they can they get this? You know, probably the easiest and least expensive way is to get it on Amazon Kindle. Mm -hmm. uh, if they want a paperback, it's least less expensive to go to Amazon.com USA. I yeah. think in Europe, for example, it's more expensive. Yeah. But ironically, uh, it's also on e-versions in Barnes and Noble, and they could easily access it through my website, which is Perception and Deception. One word perceptionanddeception.com, mm -hmm. where they can even see an excerpt of the book, mm -hmm. um, see how they can order the book, and see reviews of the book, one of which was, I'm very honored to say, was given by a former managing editor of the Financial Times in London okay. um, and a former ambassador. So I, I'm honored by their, their reception of the book, and I feel you know, it's been a privilege for me to begin to share these stories in a time of increasing globalization yeah. and polarization. Yes, 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 very much. All right, we're going towards the um, coming towards the end of the of this interview, which I've thoroughly enjoyed so far. Uh, it, it, so, two questions remain: Where can people reach you if they want to? And you are still owe me two tips to become co more culturally aware. Well, if they wanted to reach me through my website, uh -huh. which the, my Gmail address is on there, um, okay. and I'm also on LinkedIn. Okay. Joe Lurie. Um, um, those are probably the easiest ways to begin to reach me. I'm on Facebook. I have an author page on Facebook. Uh -huh. um, with regard to tips, yeah. you know, hear it just off the top of my head. Yes. I think the first tip would be whenever you meet somebody from another country yeah. and you begin to form a uh, relationship, a conversation, you might ask them what were their initial surprises, shocks, uh, when they first came to your country, whether it's the Netherlands or China or the United States, what did they see? And that will tell you their perspective that you may not have appreciated. Like those Koreans who said, I see all these Americans walking alone, sitting alone, yes. right? Um, so a conversation with someone from another culture and asking them their perceptions of you. Good. Not you yourself, but your culture. Then the second tip might be, you know, ways to get outside of your comfort zone. Mm -hmm. um, and particularly, I think young people are most open to this so that if you have nephews, nieces, children, whatever, to encourage them to have an exchange experience living with a family from another culture. Mm -hmm. That intimate day-to-day -day experience. I remember my first experience living with a French family and they served me horse but didn't say it was horse. Because we're not used to eating horse, yes. most of us in the United yeah. States. I loved it until she told me it was horse. But that was very revealing. So living with, yeah. spending time with people. And this was illustrated even more powerfully when I was asked to give a talk mm -hmm. at a at American Express about cultural disconnects. Mm -hmm. And what I noticed was a brilliant multinational audience. But most of them had never been to each other's homes. Yeah. So how could they possibly conduct business together in a in a in a good communicative style if they didn't even understand their values and the assumptions which were behind their behaviors? Yeah. Excellent. All right. Um, you've given me three tips in total. 
So that's that will do for the blog post um, for the article uh, uh, which will accompany this interview as well. And you will also be able to find a, uh, a link to Joe's book. Uh, it'll be there as well as it will be on the resource page of Culture Matters. Mr. Joseph Lurie, thank you very much for taking the time and uh, all the effort. We had some technical glitches actually getting this interview started, but I'm very happy we stuck with this. Um, and um, I'm pretty sure we'll bump into each other in the future. I hope so. And let me just say, I, one of my favorite uh, Dutch expressions is tot ziens. <laughs> tot ziens. <laughs> tot ziens. Thank you. Very good. Thank you. That's it for this podcast. Joe, thank you very much. Again, like I said, in the end, I'm pretty sure we'll bump into each other uh, in the, the future. All the links that we spoke about, also the link to his book, Perception and Deception, can be found on the website culture, culturematters.com um, and then click on the podcast link, which will open and you'll see a whole list of other podcast guests as well. And Joe's will be at the top. That depends, of course, on the time you're listening. Anyways, it was good having you here. I'll be back in two weeks' time with yet another interview. Take care. Till then. Bye-bye. That's it for this episode. The Culture Matters Podcast, helping you understand cultural diversity better by interviewing real people with real experiences.